Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. I don't know, maybe I'm too literal a thinker, but it seems to me that if the press depends on the government for money, you can't call it an independent press. And if the government locks up members of the press for doing their jobs, you can't call it a free press either. Well, here's what happened. On the morning of Friday, November 19th, an RCMP convoy drove up to a tiny house on Wet'suwet'en territory in northern B.C., Inside the house were nine protesters, or if you prefer, land defenders, and two journalists. The cops, in their enforcement of a court injunction, were clearing an area that's been blocked by demonstrators preventing the construction of the coastal gas link pipeline through unceded territory. The Mounties advanced on this tiny wooden house with their guns drawn, dogs barking, and they broke down the door, first with an axe, then with a chainsaw. That morning, 15 people were arrested across the disputed area, including freelance photojournalist Amber Bracken on assignment for the Narwhal and freelance documentary filmmaker Michael Toledano on assignment for the CBC. 
Bracken and Toledano had both been covering the ongoing demonstrations against the construction of the Coastal GasLink pipeline for a very long time. The two were held in police custody for three nights and, of course, were unable to report on the story during that time. They were released only after they agreed to conditions which included respecting the court injunction on Wet'suwet'en territory, and they had to promise to keep the peace. Now, since they got out of jail, Michael Toledano and Amber Bracken haven't really said all that much about their experiences with the police or about their relationships with the news organizations that they were there reporting for, they were putting themselves in danger for. They've tried to keep the main focus on the story, the story that they were covering. They didn't want to become the story themselves. But today they've agreed to get into all of those dynamics here on Canada Land because what happened to them has implications for all of us who are trying to do our jobs as journalists in Canada. Two quick things to note before you hear this conversation. The first is that this episode contains a graphic recording of police violence that might be disturbing to some listeners. And the second thing is a disclosure. I am not a neutral party in this story. Uh, When they were still locked up, I signed on to an open letter on behalf of Canada Land sent to the federal government demanding the immediate release of Amber and Michael, who will join me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jeffrey Sachs, Stacey Chappelle, Jason Cobborough, Nicole Mann, Trisha Matheson, Thomas McKenna, Dominic Nelson, and Braden. Hey, I'm Braden Sabera, and I'm a window washer and student from Regina, Saskatchewan. I support Canada Land because Canadian media criticism is a necessary service, so I put my money where my ears are. Since then, Jesse and the team helped break the Wii scandal, and when I realized these scrappy underdogs that I support were doing big things, it came with a sense of pride and ownership, similar to if my team won a championship. Keep it up. Uh, Sure. I'm Amber Bracken. I'm a photojournalist and documentary photographer. Uh, I work on multiple issues and with basically every outlet in Canada. I'm Michael Toledano. I'm a documentary filmmaker based in uh, Smithers, BC. And I've been following the Wet'suwet'en story since 2014 and on a full-time basis since 2018 for a feature-length documentary. Amber and Michael, hello. 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 How are you both doing since your release? How, how, How are you feeling? How are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm doing good, honestly. I I had a definite energy crash a couple days after getting out, um, but I think there's a lot to be excited about. I think there's some good conversations happening, and uh, yeah, mostly I think I'm doing really well. Yeah, I'm happy to not be in a concrete holding cell and uh, to be back to my normal life and uh, released from jail with all of the footage that I was worried about for the duration of my incarceration. Can the two of you work together to take me through step-by-step, like, what happened that day? I know there's a long backstory before that, but let's begin that day and, and maybe tell our listeners just what happened. Well, it was the second day of, um, of enforcement of the injunction. That uh, Wutsudan had held a particular drill pad, and they'd been on the territory for over, what was it, Michael, 54 days at that point? It was on day 56. Day 56, and it was the second day of police enforcement that had occurred 
on the territory. The day before, there'd been 15 people arrested at a different location that it wasn't possible to film, even though I wanted to be there, mainly because I realized that there was a really good chance that they would take me out of the territory if I was present there. So they may have let me work there, but they would very likely have taken me out. So the second day of enforcement, 15 people had been arrested, some very violently. And uh, Chief Slato, hereditary Chief Slato, Molly Wickham, was inside a tiny house at another site just adjacent to the right the right of way. And the door was locked. They were locked in with some supporters anticipating the arrival of police. And that's where Michael and I were documenting the arrival of police and the impending arrest that was basically imminent. And at this point, both of you had been there embedded with the protesters slash land defenders for how long? I'd only been there for about a week, actually. My timing was pretty bananas for this whole encounter. Like I said, they'd (laughs) been holding this site for like almost 50 days when I arrived, and the police had not shown very much interest at all. Uh, They'd had some drive-by kind of check-ins, but they didn't show any signs of doing a major enforcement and removing people from that site. So I had been watching for a while. I've obviously been following this story for years, but I hadn't been out there yet. So I thought, well, I better go and just get the lay of the land and see what's going on, because eventually I knew police would come and clear them away. So I went for what I anticipated to be a quiet, rather fact-finding story mission. But within two days of my arrival, the tactics included blocking the main service road, which got a lot more attention, and then... Again, assuming that that would be a little bit of time before police would enforce the very next day, I I was trying to figure out how I would be leaving. And instead, I was hearing reports that police were arriving in town by the plane load. So at that point, I made the decision to stay. So, no, it had been very fast, honestly. But uh, Michael can speak to his own situation. Yeah, I mean, I had been uh, filming pretty much every day since the middle of August on Wet'suwet'en Territory, just... um, you know, various developments that were important for the film that I'm working on. And prior to the construction of Coyote Camp, there was a conflict around an archaeological site where Coastal Gas Link was permitted by the government to destroy a Wet'suwet'en archaeology site. So I was filming there and encountering police at that site. Coyote Camp is the name of the occupation site that was, uh, you know, adjacent to and at Coastal Gas Link's drill site, where they planned to drill beneath Wet'suwet'en headwaters. So it's a new camp that was established two months ago and was recently torn down by Coastal Gas Link under the escort of the RCMP. And then for the duration of Coyote Camp, I pretty much slept in my vehicle, uh, you know, off the off the road so that no one could say I was impeding any access and so that I wouldn't be impeding any access. But I pretty much stayed at that site for... Uh, the entire occupation, anticipating that at some point police would block access and that when enforcement came, it would be impossible for me to access the site and to document the arrests and the police action. And prior to these arrests, that's where this this small structure, this tiny house was. And then I guess there's this standoff, uh, the 60 minutes where the, uh, that lasted for an hour where the cops were demanding. Can, can you describe that scene? Yeah, the police came up to the tiny house and said that... Uh, there was an injunction in place. They didn't read the injunction. They said there was an injunction in place and that uh, people could be arrested under the authority of the injunction. Uh, Slato, who's a Gidimden hereditary chief, she's a wing chief under Chief Wass, asked to see a warrant and asked if there was any warrant. And the police said basically that they would go and get one. Uh, and then they came back within about an hour 
and uh, said that they were entering under the authority of the civil injunction. And then, you know, you watch them start to arrive in helicopters and you're watching out the window and I'm seeing these green officers creeping closer and closer. I'm watching some of them creep into the woods. So, you know, they're around, but you can't really see them. You don't know how many there are. And, you know, at one point I saw an officer carrying a sniper rifle head into the woods. And as they start surrounding the whole tiny house, there's green military officers hiding behind a small structure that's behind the tiny house. And they take turns dashing out to cut the power and the radio and the Internet. And, yeah, all of that sort of preamble is very tense. It's very, very scary, honestly. It's, in, it's, it's intense. It feels like being surrounded by an army and they are coming to get you. Walking through the door. They're breaking it down. And then the next thing you know, they're coming through the door like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I mean, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. They took axes and chainsaws from uh, the coyote camp and, you know, started swinging the axe at the door. Pieces of the door were flying uh, throughout the tiny house. And we could hear police dogs barking and staged outside of the door. Once there was a hole in the door, we could see a man with an assault weapon pointing through the door at Chief Slato and the other occupants. Get that gun off me! Get your gun off me! Lower your gun! Get your they also then used a chainsaw to clear the rest of the door, and it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty, uh, I, I, I would say, just, you know, dangerous situation. The chainsaw ended up going through someone's boot and sawing it in half, um, you know, on the inside of the tiny house. So it was a pretty uh, reckless way to enter that building. And also, like, I don't know how relevant this is, but just like the weird psychological stuff that was going on. So obviously they were anticipating police arrival for at least two days. Everyone was listening to the radios quite closely and presumably the police, but somebody started jamming radio channels with different songs and like random, random sounds. But what songs? Uh, I have them in my notes somewhere. Like I would honestly characterize most of them as kind of dad rock, like just random rock and roll songs. Mm -hmm. But there was this one song in particular that they played twice, and it's some kind of extract from a horror movie. And it's a very, very, very spooky version of Ring Around the Rosie. And the clip starts with this very spooky little girl's voice, and she goes, I'm going to get you. I'm inside. <laughs> If I hadn't experienced it, I wouldn't believe that police would do that. It was just like, honestly, psyops, next level, crazy stuff. Um, and they did that twice. It looks terrifying. Axes, chainsaws, barking dogs, and guns pointed at you. And then we hear the cops' version of this. And what the RCMP say is that there was a 60-minute standoff where there was a dialogue. Neither of you identified yourselves during that dialogue. It was only when they came in with the axes and chainsaws that you said that you were journalists. And I think the suggestion there is that you, uh, you know, you could have come out under different circumstances, but maybe you wanted those pictures. Maybe you wanted that dramatic footage. And then the RCMP in their statement go on to say that they know the court's precedent with the Justin Brake case. They know about the special considerations that they're supposed to make for journalists, but 
that applies only if the journalists are not actively assisting, participating with, or advocating for the protesters about whom the reports are being made. And that only applies if the journalists cannot reasonably be considered to be aiding or abetting the protesters in their protest actions or breaching any order that has already been made. And I think the suggestion that the RCMP are making about the two of you is that you do not deserve those considerations that the Justin Bray case uh, established. I mean, I would challenge them to tell me exactly how I aided, abetted, or participated. I mean, it's frankly in question whether or not I even broke the injunction, particularly where we were at, was not interfering with an active worksite. But I mean, it's an interesting characterization. And my feeling is that they're embarrassed. I mean, they need to scramble to defend themselves because the reality is they knowingly arrested and detained for multiple days two people that they knew were reporting. They knew that we were there in the capacity of journalists. And I just think that, of course, they're scrambling to cover to cover their butt. Michael? Well, I think that it's, you know, very telling that the RCMP has kind of stated over and over again that we had the opportunity to leave. Because for us to leave that area, first of all, we would be opening a, a door and risking the safety of uh, the people whose story were there reporting on. You know, we would be leaving into the custody of men with assault weapons pointed at us. And uh, in all likelihood, we would have been arrested upon leaving anyway. But we would have certainly been driven to the end of their exclusion zone, which was 35 kilometers away, where we would no longer be able to uh, see or report on the conflict that was unfolding. And so they can say that we had the opportunity to leave, but it's in a very, very narrow sense that we did. In terms of the comment that we didn't identify ourselves prior, you know, both Amber's editors and my producers contacted the RCMP directly and told them that we were on the territory and that we expected to be able to continue doing our job safely and that we were not there to interfere with police actions. Sorry, on the point of identifying ourselves, I mean, I'm completely open to being as communicative as possible, as direct as possible, making sure that everyone who needs to know knows. But even had we not sent our letter to them um, to the RCMP via our editors, even had I not verbally identified myself, even had I not had it physically on my person, I don't think that that changes the fact that the moment that they do know that you're there as a journalist, that that changes the conversation and that they should have let us go. I mean, sure, I'm down with making sure that they know as soon as possible. And I absolutely think we did our due diligence in that way. But I don't think that excuses the fact that they continued to hold us. It doesn't matter when they found out. I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter. I think they knew for a month or longer, like, you know, I think they've known for years who I am and what I'm doing out there. But even if they'd found out, you know, 10 minutes after they arrested me, they should have let me go at that point. I don't think I'm reading too much into their statement and also just the facts that you're presenting to say that my understanding of their position is, oh, no, we knew that you consider yourselves journalists. We don't. Th th that's what I'm taking from yeah, their message. I mean, the RCMP can't be the ones who make a political and ideological determination of who is and who isn't a journalist. The fact of the matter is that Amber and I were there and captured images of incredible public importance, of incredible importance to Canadians and, you know, uh, of essential value to Canadian history, to the historical record. Incidents around injunctions, I think particularly the police take this punitive approach to controlling all space and it's deeply problematic to have the RCMP make those kinds of determinations because 
often it's not journalists who are accredited or who are carrying press credentials who are capturing images of public importance, but it's just like someone with a phone or someone with a camera. And at the same time as the RCMP were enforcing on Wet'suwet'en territory, they were enforcing on Gixan territory, which is the neighboring territory, an injunction against, uh, held by CN Rail against the Gixan hereditary chiefs and their supporters. And the police enacted an incredibly violent arrest there of uh, Denzel Sutherland Wilson, who is both a well-known leader in that community, but also actually an elected council uh, member. Uh, four officers were on top of him and, you know, had their knees on his neck or, you know, were otherwise restraining him. And he was yelling, I can't no, breathe, I can't you're breathe. You're not allowed to be here. I can't breathe. Fuck. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Get off him. Get off him. He says he can't breathe. Get off him. Get off him. And, you know, we've seen that footage before. We've seen the footage of George Floyd and, you know, the idea that the police can just enact violence and target people with cameras based on their own established patterns of, uh, you know, their own established bias against those particular people is ridiculous. People should be able to document police actions full stop in any context, anywhere. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Well, I think it's an interesting conversation. It's where things are heading to say, okay, there's a traditional journalist who, you know, 
in many ways did what you guys did or what your organizations did. There was advance notice. Uh, you know, it was communicated. Uh, you were not uh, just a, a bystander with a phone out. Or in some cases, the best pictures you get are from the people who are involved. Uh, there are a lot of gray areas that are emerging as the way that we collect news is changing. But this is a fairly traditional one. And, and I take your point, Michael, that had you come out of the tiny house and said, "Hands up, with your hands up, I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. I want the considerations that a reporter gets you would not have been allowed to continue reporting. So it's a bit of a catch-22. I think that's all valid, but I do want to dig into this other aspect of their, I guess, what, what's emerging as their case against you, which is not just about identifying yourself, but this idea of who's a protester and who's a journalist, and if you're helping them, you're not a journalist. It's not just the RCMP who seem to be confused or asserting that you're not real journalists. There were people online who were screenshotting this page from uh, a website called yintaaccess.com, which I believe is, is uh, the website of Wet'suwet'en land defenders, protesters, what have you. And there is this demand made under the heading media protocol. And the demand is all reporting must center, prioritize, and uplift Wet'suwet'en voices and sovereignty. And that if you don't agree to that, you might be banned from covering Wet'suwet'en stories. Did either of you agree to that protocol? Look, it, the, the first time I ever saw that protocol was actually in the aftermath of this thing where some of the, you know, the trolls came out of the woods to try and pick apart or undermine my position. But the reality is nobody's ever asked me to sign any kind of agreement from camp or otherwise. And nobody reviews my work either. I am have absolute editorial independence within that space. And as far as I can understand it, I don't really see how that protocol is any different than the the regular PR protocol that you would deal with with a corporation to begin with. Honestly, I've had a lot more freedom and ability to work within that territory than I would or I have uh, in getting information and responses out of Coastal Gaslink. Well, I mean, there's two parts to that, and and I think that that the at least the uh, the operative part is you're telling us you did not agree to anything like that, and you didn't see that until after the fact. Is that true for you as well, Michael? Well. You know, for years I've been following this story and I've done an incredible amount of documentation of the Wet'suwet'en history where, you know, their laws, their sovereignty, their right to free prior and informed consent has been violated by the police, by the courts, by Coastal Gaslink. And my ethic is to not reproduce those harms in my work. Uh, you know, I take it very seriously that the Wet'suwet'en have been burned by media in the past and have been mistreated by media in the past. And so, you know, I, I put a lot of care into working closely with elders and talking to elders into finding, finding out from community members that my reporting is in fact accurate, taking into account oral histories, things like that. Like I've never signed any agreement and I've never also been told to, uh, you know, alter my work in a way that I felt was dishonest or, you know, obscured the truth of something that was happening. I wouldn't do that. All right, but shy of signing that, did you agree to that? No. I understand that there's a history of uh, exploitation and extraction and, you know, just communities have been burned by journalists so much. So I kind of understand where that demand is coming from. But I also understand another system of thought, which is like, if, if any party in a controversial news story says, you're only allowed to report on this if you take our side, the answer is no, you don't agree to anything. There are people out there saying that you, both of you have obviously agreed to these terms. I appreciate that we can clear that up. That's not the case. 
there are people out there saying all kinds of shit. <laughs> like, uh, you know, obviously this is a story where Canada is being exposed for its violence. And I think that our population is generally quite deluded as to the realities of this country. We, we grow up, you know, as a settler, I grew up without any sense of actual truthful history of what this country is about, how it came to be. And, you know, this is a story that cuts to the heart of, of land ownership in British Columbia, whether or not British Columbia even has a legitimate claim to, you know, 22,000 square kilometers of land. So, you know, there'll be every possible attack vector to discredit or distract from the images that we captured. But we're dealing with like legal terms here where the RCMP are making the case that you're not journalists, you're protesters, or they will be making that case. And uh, the public is trying to figure out what the truth of that is. And these things get defined in much more narrow terms than that. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, I I think you could both probably appreciate how this is like, it's new stuff for a lot of people out there. And I think it's no surprise that it's not traditional journalists who are getting the best access, the best pictures, the deepest commitment. But it does bring new dynamics into the way that we tell these stories. Why are we allowing the RCMP to arbitrate who is and who isn't a journalist in the first place? I mean, I would argue that the key issue here in this interaction was how the police were interacting with the Wet'suwet'en occupiers, that, that their conduct was under the most scrutiny. And at that point, why are we allowing them to decide Who's allowed to scrutinize them? I mean, basically, we're walking into a police state where we have to ask permission from the police in order to observe them and and under what conditions that's allowed. That's insane to me. I think that the court decision following break has left things in a very cloudy place where journalists get a wide berth unless they're doing this, that, and the other thing. And who gets to determine that? It it does seem like at least the Mounties seem to think that that's that's up to them. And maybe, I don't know, maybe your cases will help like sort that out because that seems like a pretty big... Pretty big liability for trying to do this kind of work. Michael, I want to just clarify one thing that came up in the record. You tweeted that you were actually given an option to avoid arrest. Sorry, in what context did I tweet that? I I don't actually recall that. The tweet from you read, I could have signed conditions on site and continued to work. What does that mean? Yeah, to clarify, what that means is that I think both myself and Amber were incarcerated for four days. We were held in holding cells. We were, you know, barely fed. They had the lights on 24 hours a day. We were denied access to toothbrushes and soap. And, you know, we were given like a punitive jail treatment. And both of us were stopped from doing our work for four days. And then when we appeared before the judge, we were given fairly minimal conditions that we have to abide by the injunction, that we have to appear in court, uh, which are already, you know, the first one at least is already our legal responsibility. And so understanding that a day prior, a documentary filmmaker was arrested, removed from the territory in handcuffs, driven to the Houston detachment and then released unconditionally. My point was that we could have been given the conditions of release that we eventually had to sign, you know, uh, the first night we were arrested or even on site. Uh, You know, police could have given us those conditions after placing us under arrest. And instead, they kept us for four days. I totally understand what you're saying now. Now I understand. I'm so glad that we're clearing this up because people have been saying, look, they wanted to get arrested. Here he is. He's even admitting it that he could have signed something and then not, and then continued to work. That's not what you meant at all. What you were saying is that there was no need to hold you for four days 
pending an appearance before a judge where all you had to do was sign these conditions, which you would have been willing to have signed on site. And then you could have kept reporting for four days. Instead, they took you away from the scene of the story and prohibited you from reporting. And that might've been the point. So that is a bit of misinformation or at least misinterpretation that is going around. And I'm very glad to have the chance to clear that up. It was absolutely, you know, punitive to keep us in there for four days without even showing us a piece of paper that we could sign that would outline conditions where we could be released. Even if they were, you know, if they were not agreeable, at least having that option for release, you know, I understand to be fairly standard. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's that's part of the, the, the historical record here is that they have detained and even arrested journalists in this covering this story. But to hold somebody for several days, this is new. Uh, and I, I do believe I actually I take the same opinion as Michael that that was intended to be a dampening effect that it's meant to in, uh, intimidate you know punish disincentivize us from covering this again or for being present in the same way. I just want to push back like I think you keep saying things like uh, oh you're not traditional journalists or or this or that and. I mean, I don't agree. I really don't agree. I, I'm just like was sitting here and I, I reopened the Justin Brake decision um, and I can't see a single place in any of those five points in which I'm not absolutely, you know, covered under the Justin Brake decision. And I think that like perhaps there's maybe two separate conversations that are happening where maybe the RCMP might try to just say that I'm not a journalist or not functioning like a journalist, but I'm all of my actions are well within the range of established journalism practices. Even this, this, uh, their allegation of being embedded or the suggestion that somehow by being embedded, that means that I'm not functioning as a journalist. Well, the whole concept of being embedded is a well-established journalistic practice that is used for all different kinds of organizations, including the police and the military. I just think that there's like a separate conversation that doesn't actually have to do with a legal definition of journalism. That's more about framing and, and, you know, how do you frame a story? So the fact that I use language that is uh, suggested or that comes from the community that I cover, that I'm not applying language on top of them. Like, I don't think that that has any kind of like negative connotations on my function as a journalist, traditional or otherwise. Do you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, there's two conversations happening here. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think so either. I don't think it's a qualitative thing at all. But it is a thing. And the thing is this: you're not a Canadian press traditional reporter. You're not a CBC truck with a that, that that drops in for a day and stands outside of the little house and does a you know a one hour report where you see figures in the background. Uh, freelancers don't get the same consideration. You don't look or act. Uh, the the use of the term land defender is something that you know the, the, from an RCMP officer's point of view. It's not a case that I'm making, but it's obviously in telling this story. What they're obviously framing this as is the break decision establishes journalism on on the following basis. And we're going to say that you guys don't fit. So I think that in terms of qualitative assessment or practices of journalism, I agree. It seems like getting very close to your story, spending a lot of time with your story, understanding the history of your story. These are all classical. These are, these are best practices, but it's no accident. The major news organizations are not the ones making the commitment to keep people on site for as long as the two of you have made those commitments. Right. And honestly, that's the elephant in the room is that basically because we don't have or I don't have a major publication behind me this time around, that somehow that undermines my credibility. Now, I have covered this story for the New York Times. I could have pitched it to them again. I just have a 
closer relationship with the narwhal. And honestly, they've been following the story longer. And so that's why I went with them. But the, the elephant in the room is, is that the reason why I don't have legacy media behind me is because I'm expensive. I'm a photographer and we don't really exist on staff anywhere in Canada anymore. Yeah. So it isn't that the work that I'm doing isn't valuable. It isn't that they don't want to access the work that I'm creating. It's a fact that I'm too expensive. And so the fact that police are, are using that or or uh, critics are using that as a as a as a means to undermine my credibility, it's I mean this is this is a function of of the the media ecosystem right now. It absolutely is. And it's no accident that as even, you know, it's not even like you're, the two of you are apart from the mainstream. As you describe, you file to mainstream sources. Um, but there was a traditional respect or birth or consideration given if you looked that way and if you were on staff and if you had the logo, right? And it's no accident that now we're seeing police move in on spaces and and, and lock up reporters in a way that I don't think that they used to dare to, given that it's a different type of journalist or it seems, looks like a different type of journalist that's doing this work. And, and, you know, Amber, I know that the Narwhal has had your back and they have been protecting you and defending you legally, claiming you publicly. Both of you have enjoyed the support of, of the industry of your colleagues writ large, right? The Toronto Star put you on the front page. The Canadian Association of Journalists sent a letter to the federal government demanding your immediate release, which dozens of news organizations signed. But Michael, the CBC did not sign that document demanding your release. And in fact, though we see you identifying yourself as somebody who's there doing a story for the CBC to the RCMP, when the CBC report on the story in at least one of their reports, they don't claim you. They call you an independent filmmaker. So what's what's up with that? What's going on there? Yeah, they sure didn't sign that uh, document asking for my release from prison, um, which was surprising to see when I got out that, uh, you know, every news organization in Canada pretty much, or not all of them, but the majority of them had signed that, uh, except for the one that I was working for. So, uh, you know, what is happening with that? Well, in the week leading up to my arrest, I was filing uh, footage to CBC The National, to CBC News Network. I was filing audio to CBC Radio. And um, from what I can tell, nowhere have they publicly claimed that work or acknowledged that work. Um, and so I think that it, it speaks to the relationship that freelancers have with many Canadian outlets. Uh, you know, we take all of the risk mm -hmm. and we are not guaranteed any institutional support. There has been a bit of institutional support that's followed some of the conversations I've had. Um, you know, CBC Docs is a separate entity from CBC News, and they've offered, uh, you know, some financial support to help with my legal fees and the costs that I've incurred. Uh, the, the reason that they gave me for refusing to sign that letter was that it was lobbying a politician. Uh, that it was making a specific, uh, you know, request from a specific politician, and CBC has a policy against that as the public broadcaster. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that is a satisfying answer. Uh, you know, it certainly wasn't satisfying to me after four days in holding cells. And honestly, this is, I think the contrast between Michael's experience and my experience is exactly the problem. So because photographers and video makers or videographers are expensive, newspapers and magazines and all of the different publications decided to outsource it almost as a complete institutional decision, like across the board, across our entire industry. Uh, but nobody addressed the cost of doing business or what would be the liability. And the reality is, is that 
there's many, many roles in a newsroom that can be performed remotely. Photography and videography cannot. I literally have to be present, which means I'm in many cases the most exposed, like we're in the most vulnerable position and assuming the most risk. But we haven't, as an industry, had a conversation about how that risk will be assessed. And so it's completely up to the individual outlet to decide what they will and won't do. I'm completely supported by the narwhal. Michael's marginally supported by the CBC um, and this is part of the risk and part of the problem. I think it's a dampening effect on the coverage that we've been seeing in this country. I think listeners should be really aware of what is happening right now. Michael, and I think that very measured critique of CBC's failure to adequately support you, you are taking part of your career in your hands, right? I mean, your access to the national, your access to the, the passionate eye, to the, the center stage of the public broadcaster uh, for national broadcast is probably one of the best assets you have as a documentary filmmaker and as a reporter. And CBC is notoriously thin-skinned and they blacklist people and they don't really truck the slightest criticism. But in this instance, like, what the fuck? If this was one of their own people, I do think it would be different. And I do think that it is morally indefensible and cowardly to be willing to publish your work and to present it to Canadians as CBC journalism like any other. You know, like the, the, the viewer has no idea that you're not on staff. What does that matter to the viewer? Like this is, this is reporting. This is a documentary. This is something that's on the national. And if you were staff training, legal protection, advocacy in public and behind the scenes, but in this case – what? Like somebody, I guess, is trying to do their best within within the doc unit to get some money, uh, but, but, but officially they're not willing to take any position in your defense. I think they should be shamed for that. I think that's, that, that is shameful. I would agree. I think I would just clarify. I do have uh, some sense that there are people within the CBC who have been advocating for me. Um, but I was, you know, uh, very candid with the CBC that I would be coming on to this podcast, particularly with the doc unit, because... I've actually had no real contact with the national since I filed to them. And, uh, you know, I was encouraged to come on here and speak my truth. I think it's important in a principled way, but it's also just a practical thing. I mean, I think there are like, you know, less the CBC kind of wash their hands of this, like, well, you know, this is a little bit too out there and we don't know what all of our freelancers are up to or lest any listeners out there like, ah, you know, the, the, the narwhal has its point of view there. These are small media organizations. Like how much do I really care about this? What I want people to take away from this is you are the ones left to tell these stories. Like, we don't like it, it actually is just a practical matter as to whether or not we're going to know what's going on or not, right? So your rights are everyone's rights, not just in an ideological way, but in a very practical way. And part of why I feel so strongly about the CBC's failure in this is that like, you're going to go through the court process now and, and I think you'll win. And what you'll win is something that all of these news organizations are going to then use. You know, everyone's going to benefit, but it's a stressful thing to be at the center of this. And it's it's literally the state versus you and your freedom on the line. Like, I don't want to get too dramatic about this, but uh, these are the stakes. This is what's happening here. I think also what we're going to win in the event that we win uh, some kind of affirmation of journalist rights or press rights in Canada. What we're actually going to win is another court order that the RCMP selectively ignore. Uh, you know, yeah. when they're when they're when it comes to people who are covering indigenous land issues, I want to uh, leave this conversation with something that um, Karen Pugliese said to me at an earlier stage of, of this conflict. Uh, 
you know, Karen's now with the CBC, actually, but this was back in February 2020 when we spoke to her. And at the time, she was, uh, she was the executive director of APTN. And she said that the wildest thing about injunction enforcement when it comes to the media is that the RCMP's fear tactics work. So this is what she said then about her decision as a news boss to not allow a reporter to cross the injunction line. At that moment, when Kathleen was going to cross the line, I told her not to. They got me to back down. They did it. They got me to back down. Because what I'm thinking is I'm not just, you know, if it was me, I would have crossed the line because I'm responsible for myself. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like, what if, what if, what if she ends up in jail? Like, I'm responsible for that. What if I can't protect her? And that's, that's where you start creeping into this police state. You know, this is where you start seeing the erosion of rights. I mean, it starts with the media. And say what you want about the media. I like the media. I hate the media. Whatever. But when they start taking away our free expression, and we're the ones out there in the front line, it becomes so much easier to take away everybody else's. I think that's exactly the problem. I mean, that, that, that's exactly the issue at hand here, is that it takes, it takes an intentionally courageous choice to establish that right to work and that freedom to work, because what you will have is is rights creep. The more that we accept it, and, th- and this is where my critique of legacy media comes in. I've worked at, like, I can't even count how many press-heavy events I've covered where there's all of the outlets kind of standing in the same place on the same corner and police telling us where we can and can't go, and how many times... I would just wish that people would collectively say, no, we're not going to do that. You don't have a charter basis foundation for limiting our access. Um, So I think it takes a consciously courageous decision to push those boundaries and protect those freedoms. Because even in the, you know, relatively short period of my career, I've been working for about 11 or 12 years now. I've seen the encroachment of these rights. I've seen that we have had them curtailed and access gets worse and restrictions get more and it gets harder and harder and harder to even see what's going on. They'll say, oh yeah, we can give you a a point of view. We'll give you a vantage point and it's, you know, a kilometer away. And all you can really see is the backs of police officers and it's not actually real oversight. Michael, any thoughts on on, on what Amber just said or what, what Karen said back in 2020? I mean... I think it is a conscious choice to to continue to report on this story, and it's one that involves adapting to or anticipating police tactics of repression. Uh, you know, year after year, uh, we've anticipated exclusion zones. Uh, we've anticipated that access would be blocked, and, you know, the only way around that is to spend extended periods of time uh, on the territory preempting any police offensive, uh, preempting any police action. Uh, I think that, you know, being arrested and incarcerated for this will not stop me from uh, going out onto the territory and continuing to report on the story and continuing to hold the police accountable in their actions. You know, Wet'suwet'en, uh, the conflict on Wet'suwet'en territory was the biggest news story of 2020 before COVID hit. And uh, I don't think there's any excuse for the media in the fact that it was just a handful of independent filmmakers and Amber Bracken that were on the, you know, the right side of this. We've seen the playbook play out before. And, 
you know, I have an open question of why more resources weren't devoted to this story in advance. Well, if, if the entire country and the entire media is ultimately going to rely on two individuals to tell us the next steps in a story that was the biggest story in the country, at a minimum, you'd think that the news organizations benefiting from that would stand up for them. That is your Canada Land. If you liked it, please support us. Hey, there's still time to send us your stories of Christmas in the newsroom. If you are a journalist who has one of those stories, awful stories, funny stories, stressful stories, we're here for them. Uh, please send them in an email or, you know, do an audio note on your phone. Send it to editor at canadaland.com. We're going to use them on a podcast. You can always email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at canadaland, and our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced by Cherie Suturin and Tristan Capicione. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Music is by so-called syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, did you know that you can give premium Canada Land as a gift? Go to canadaland.com slash join or hit the link in our show notes to find out how. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.